Me. Thank you. Um, thanks to Nick as well for having me. Um, it's it's great to be here, and it's been very useful to catch up on the recordings of those papers from the Manchester Met Symposium, which which really did I think animate those strands that you you were you were um, mentioned at the start. And hopefully, this paper will go some way towards perhaps syncing or putting a conversation between those those two emotional paradigms or emerging paradigms of what we mean by metamodernism. Um, just to preface this, I guess, by saying that I, I don't want to propose here yet another theory of metamodernism. You'll be relieved to hear. Um, rather, I suppose I just want to extend the ways in which um, metamodernism has offered a useful frame for thinking about affect, uh, that slippery term, um, particularly in my, in my case for thinking historically and conceptually about the relationship between affect and novelistic form, or the, the politics of form. Um, what I'm going to say today will have some, something um, in common with my current book on Constellation, which Anthony just uh, mentioned. But thinking more broadly, um, I suppose in preparing this talk for today, um, I've been, I suppose my faith has been renewed in the, in the latitude of metamodernism as a, as a useful term um, uh, for thinking about um, modernist lineages in contemporary writers' efforts to negotiate ambivalent affects. So uh, it's really, I think it's, it's become a useful uh, term for triangulating uh, what modernism did, what contemporary writers are trying to do, um, and our understanding of the development of literary affect in the long 20th century and into our own. First off, I'm going to uh, start with a writer who will be figuring later today, I know. Fiction today is beset by the lyrical that at least is the view of Zadie Smith, who in 2008 published in the New York Review of Books what has arguably become one of the most influential essays on the state of 21st century fiction, written by a novelist. Familiar, palatable, resilient, the lyrical has become infectious, Smith observes, its syndrome a matter of serious concern for the very condition of contemporary fiction. By virtue of her title alone, Smith joined a long-standing tradition of prominent writers who issue prognoses for the novel by recourse to the symbolism diverging paths. This tendency stems back to Iris Murdoch's famous 1961 essay Against Dryness, where she offered a polarised vision of post-war literature condemned to two equally unsatisfactory routes. Following either the journalistic or crystalline trails, the former inhibits decent characterization by reducing persons to social types or mouthpieces for political argument, while the latter, crystalline mode, satisfies all too easily what Murdoch called the reader's desire for consolation highly wrought language and exquisite design. Reading between the lines of Murdoch's portrait, as I've done at length elsewhere, it would appear that the crystalline mode is a direct descendant of the lyricism and interiority of a certain kind of high modernist aesthetic, namely the elegant impressionism of Virginia Woolf. More on her in a moment. As such, Murdoch's complaint was also a complaint against the legacies of lyrical modernism. Similarly, in his 1969 account of the situation in the novel, David Lodge drew on a comparable metaphor, placing the post-war writer standing at the crossroads, poised between commitments, Lodge's archetypal young writer face on the one hand, a prospect of increasingly elaborate experiments with form, a sort of obligation to continue the, will, the modernist will to innovation, and on the other, the enduring influence of social realism. Recently, Mark McGill has offered his own spin on this split diagnostic formula, writing for public books under the heading of the novel's Forking Path. In Smith's case, sorry, in Smith's case, the two paths in question applies, I'm sure you, you've known if you've read the essay, to Joseph O'Neill's post-9-11 novel Netherland in 2008 and Tom McCarthy's avant-garde debut Remainder, originally published in 2005. According to Smith, O'Neill's sumptuous narration consoles his readers. To her, Netherland is perfectly done 
but in a sense that's the problem. McCarthy's austere prose, by contrast, challenges and alienates us, thereby pointing to a healthy form of constructive deconstruction, as she dubs it, that opens up a more vibrant future for 21st century fiction than lyrical realism could ever do. It's not really realism that's her point of contention, but the sheer familiarity of lyricism across the contemporary scene, a state of affairs that Smith finds, what she, so she says, somewhat dispiriting. Lyrical writing for her is a bit like a rhododendron, a bush that looks great but thrives like a weed, obliterating all other species in its path. There's a knowing hypocrisy, though, about her critique. For lyrical realism is in no mode she adopted just a few years before in the campus novel and homage to Ian Forster on Beauty. Since then, however, Smith has come to regard this kind of lyrical fiction with suspicion, identifying in it a, re a reliance on lushly evoked impressions and soothing resolutions. That lyrical realists transcribe social and psychic harm with such grace is damaging, Smith argues Smith, especially when they deal, as in Netherland's case, with terrorism's collective fallout, along with the pernicious ethnic divisions and social anxieties that it provokes. Hence, Smith concluded that while she's written in this tradition and cautiously hopes for its survival, she maintained that if it's to survive, lyrical realists will have to push a little harder on their subject. For Smith, the problem with lyrical writing is that it betrays a dominant structure of feeling, one that pervades not only literary production, but also the critical value systems by which contemporary fiction is reviewed. The aspiration to lyricism is not an inclination loosely connecting a handful of writers. I mean, we could think of here, of, I don't know, Alan Hollinghurst, Michael Ndachi, uh, Camilla Shamsi, um, Juma Lahiri. More damagingly for her, it's an omnipresent condition for contemporary culture, one that perpetuates what she calls the myth, the myth of a transcendent importance of form, the incantatory power, power of language to reveal truth. As she ratchets up these indictments, it becomes apparent that a real target is not the future of literary innovation per se, but rather the audience placated by lyrical fiction's conventions. The hazards of such con conventions are everywhere apparent for Smith, because lyrical realism's most universal threat is the way, the way that it consorts with consolation, equating fiction with what she calls here the bedtime story that comforts us most. Now in this talk, I want to argue that Smith doth protest a little too much about lyricism's apparent side effects. I also want to suggest that lyrical structures of feeling in fiction today are prototyped by modernism. By observing this lineage, we get a better sense of how lyricism operated in early 20th century works that were very much the antithesis of bedtime stories. I thus want to argue that lyrical fiction's presence in recent times isn't something we should bemoan, precisely because it offers a condition of possibility for contemporary writing and its ongoing dialogue with modernism, rather than a barometer of the novel's decline. More pointedly, I'd like to contend that the assumptions we make about the efficacy or alternatively the inadequacy of lyrical forms whether in the modernist era or in our own post-millennial one, shed light on the very nature of critical desire, namely, what it is that we want the novel to do. Now, Smith's own essay, essay at Grant's uh, taste of such desires, as her misgivings revolve around the ethics of a style that she believes is leading writers astray. Lyrical realism not only comforts readers, she implies, but in a sense, also comforts the novel itself. In an era when this cultural form can no longer rest on its laurels, especially if you believe a grumpy doomsayer like Will Self, Lushly rendered moments of sensation and reflection, blunt fiction's incentive to do something more urgent, innovative, and challenging. In short, the lyrical stops fiction from becoming adventurous, in a sense, from becoming modernist. Not only does this sort of argument rely on a false dichotomy between the rich affects of lyrical narration and the purportedly transgressive and therefore radical effects of modernist innovation, it also underestimates the force with which modernist writers subjected their own lyrical aesthetics to serious deliberation. 
The legacy of this deliberative reflection on lyrical form is one that contemporary writers working in very different genres and hailing from distinct cultural traditions are responding to. Bringing otherwise unrelated figures into conversation, as this paper will do, is one of the advantages of what I see would, and what I would call the, sort of the strategic capaciousness of metamodernism as a frame for comparative analysis. Now, at this point in the talk, before I get on with the meat of the analysis, I should probably acknowledge that Robin van Dacker and Tim Vermeulen are cautious about letting metamodernism refer to what they call anyone's stylistic register. But here I want to show that the prevalence of fictions that turn lyrical style into an agent reflection rather than sentimentality seem to complement what Acker and Vermeulen describe as metamodernism's emergence, quote, as a structure of feeling, shot through reproductive con contradictions, shimmering tensions, and constant oscillation. You might assume, again following Zadie Smith's cue, that the job of lyrical style is to patch up those fissures, to usher that state of oscillation towards some kind of reconciling calm or pristine design. But fi lyrical fiction often stages its own self-examinations, testing its own ability to redress the personal collective traumas that so much post-millennial writing now specialises in, and which so many modernist texts, as we know, took as their subject. Initial phase to this talk, then, I prize open the carapace of disappointment that Smith planted on lyrical realism in the very act of coining a term for it, so that I can then play devil's advocate with their claims about its current epidemic. I do this to consider why recent instantiations of lyrical form might be worth defending, when their ethical implications and affective complexity turn out to be more multivalent, that is, less straightforwardly comforting, than Smith would lead us to believe. To provide a more generous take on what the lyrical might mean for contemporary fiction, we need first to account for the self-scrutinising nature of lyrical form as a key chapter in the story of modernist fiction. I'll revisit that chapter now in full recognition of the misgivings about the cultural distinction that modernism granted to lyrical renditions of perception and which Adam Kelly so astutely unpacked in his paper on anti-modernism and the new sincerity for the Manchester Met Symposium. However, I'll be inclined here, perhaps more inclined than Adam, uh, to, to grant modernism some sort of critical amnesty in order to detach one of its paragons uh, from the prestige-mongering difficulty with which he is sometimes associated. But I want to make the sort of brazenly unfashionable suggestion that we look again to Virginia Woolf. To be sure, Woolf is hardly a figure who needs recuperating, but a fiction is unquestionably a flashpoint in the history of the novel's own debate with itself, a debate that performs an examination of how stylistic grace transfigures losses that seem irreparable, that may even appear ineffable. What Wolf reveals is that modernism fostered sometimes combative, sometimes consoling uses of lyricism. The contested status of the lyrical in modernist fiction set in motion a dialectic of scrutiny and solace. And this dialectic can be felt in post-millennial works that are thematically preoccupied with devastation and formally preoccupied with style's capacity to counterpoint the pain it evokes. So after revisiting Wolf, I'll consider Colson Whitehead and finally David Grossman, an Israeli writer for whom the personal stakes of apprising lyrical writing through its metamodernist tensions couldn't be higher. The potential for modernism to offer even a smidgen of solace would be heretical to some of its most influential commentators. In his 1937 verdict on affirmative culture, Herbert Marcuse insist insisted that readers overcome life's factual loneliness by welcoming the glow of great and beautiful words. Marcuse pictures an audience beguiled by works that present the counter-image of what occurs in social reality. Going further still, he advises that art pacifies rebellious desire, offering in place of agitation the consolation of a beautiful moment in an interminable chain of misfortune. Thanks to these exquisite moments, says Marcuse, the reader tolerates the unfreedom of social existence. Startling though his homogenization of readerly inclination may seem, 
Marcuse's diagnosis of pacification established critical coordinates with a lasting impact, influencing the terms in which modernism is now valued for how it fosters disconsolation, how it outlaws repair, how it prevents the glow of words from mitigating despair. Endorsing a modernist resurgence in late 20th century fictions of decolonization and uneven development, Neil Lazarus contends that, quote, the ongoing critical dimension of modernist literary practice lies in a form of post-colonial writing that resists the accommodationism of what has been canonized as modernism and carries forward what subversive modernist work has done from the outset, namely says no, refuses integration, resolution, consolation, comfort, and instead protests and criticizes. For Lazarus, modernism's most potent lesson for contemporary writers is the forestalling of consolation. Accordingly, uh, in temporally and emotionally disarming works from Sobhiji Sebold, Kazushi Guru, and Sam Rushdie, these are his examples, we see a frail light of utopia, says Lazarus, shining on or rather through the unseeing eyes of the unknowing thoughts of their characters. And it's this implication, he reckons, that engenders disconsolation in us as readers. Similarly, Tyrus Miller celebrates late modernist writing precisely for its satirical refusal of what he sees as high modernism's preoccupation with mastering a chaotic modernity by means of formal techniques, including irony, multi-perspectivism, and the existential glue of large-scale symbolic forms. By unsettling the signs of formal craft that testify to the modernist writer's discursive mastery, he argues, later figures like Wyndham Lewis, DeJuna Barnes, and Samuel Beckett sought to deflate the symbolic resources refined by Joycean encyclopedism or Wolfian lyricism. In place of the consolations of architectonic cohesion or elegant stylization, late modernist fiction gave primacy, according to Miller, quote, to those negative forces of the age that could not be coaxed into any admirable design of words. Now, generative though these arguments are, I think, for, uh, in, in, for appreciating modernism's criticality, whether in late or post-colonial contexts, they rehearse the assumption that as soon as literature consoles, it immediately compromises its own capacity for critique. They also assume that the political options writers face in their rendezvous with solace present black and white choices between indulgence or negation, complicity or refusal, formal compensations versus their unsentimental renunciation, acquiescent resolution versus condonable agitation. All of which limits our options for considering how literature solicits intricate kinds of thinking about troubling affects that extend beyond predictable binaries. Solace can be as troubling as any, of course. Its simultaneous enactment and inspection in modernist writing produces structures of feeling whose persistence offers new critical opportunities for metamodernism as a paradigm for reading the relation between affect and form in fiction today. Indeed, if we look at closer at what is actually happening in the affective worlds of modernist fiction, it's by no means certain that novelists then saw in craft a consoling means of mitigating or managing turbulent forces of the day, as Tyrus Miller claims. Consider the epitome of admirable design, The Lighthouse. The novel seems keenly aware of the very fragility of modernist attempts to contain contingency and violence aesthetically that lay modernist writers like Lewis and Beckett subsequently sought to satirise. The Lighthouse is punctuated throughout by instances of solace, drawn either from routine, from the natural world, from the act of painting itself. We might recall the measured and soothing tattoo of the waves that for Mrs. Ramsey, quote, seemed consolingly to repeat over and over again as she sat with the children, the words of some cradle song murmured my nature. An ecological solace that on other days contains its own counterpointing impulse of terror, replacing such kindly meaning with a ghostly roll of drums that remorselessly beat the measure of life, an ephemeral life that had slipped past in one quick doing after another. Or we might consider Mrs. Ramsey's likening of her sense of creation with her husband to a variety of, quote, solace, which two different notes, one high, one low, struck together, seem to give each other as they combine. 
Or we might recall Mr. Ramsey's impatient demand upon Lily to solace his soul in the final part of the novel, knowing, quote, that she could not sustain this enormous weight of sorrow, knowing, too, his propensity for sudden roars of ill temper, complete annihilation. Lily only has the courage to praise, praise his nice leather boots. And finally, in the most haunting part of the narrative, Lily's longing for Mrs. Ramsey manifests ghostly visions of her vanishing with her usual quickness across the fields. This very sight, we're told, the phrase had its power to console. In a novel that is all, of course, all about a family's irreparable fragmentation, Wolfe doesn't treat consolation uncritically. Like symbolism itself, with its power to give figurative order to experience, so with solace, Wolfe leaves it in abeyance, incomplete, as unsated as Mr. Ramsey's insatiable hunger for sympathy. So much for the content of Wolfe's story of unfulfillable repair. Where form's concerned, something else is going on. In the time passes section, Wolfe at once stages and inspects language's necessarily compromised attempt to redress the absence in this coastal home that couldn't be more self-evident. A poignant discrepancy arises between the section's rhetorical plenitude and the vacancy of its setting. A discrepancy that nonetheless is a testament to that fraction of resuscitation that fiction ventures to provide, recognising the very act of doing so how Gossamer-style salve remains when conjuring glimmers of the home's former hustle and bustle that the novel also mourns. What people had shed and left, a pair of shoes, a shooting cap, some faded skirts and coats and wardrobes, those alone kept the human shape, and the emptiness indicated how once they were filled and animated, how once hands were busy with hooks and buttons, how once the looking-glass had held a face, had held a world hollowed out in which a figure turned, a hand flashed, the door opened, in came children rushing and tumbling, and went out again. Now, day after day, light turned, like a flower reflected in water, its clear image on the opposite wall, the wall opposite. Only the shadows of the trees, flourishing in the wind, made obeisance on the wall, and for a moment darkened the pool in which the light reflected itself, or birds, flying, made a soft spot flutter slowly across the bedroom floor. So lovingness reigned with unstillness, and together made the shape of loveliness itself, a form from which life had parted. Loveliness and stillness clasped hand in the bedroom, and among the shrouded jugs and sheeted chairs, even the prying of the wind and the soft nose of the clammy sea airs, rubbing, snuffling, iterating and reiterating their questions. Will you fade? Will you perish? Scarcely disturb the peace, the indifference, the air of pure integrity, as if the question they asked scarcely needed they should answer. We remain. Nothing, it seemed, could break that image. At the confluence here of presence and absence, we encounter the paradox of a form that at once testifies to irrevocable loss and provides the shape the life it elegizes, Simul simulating in the galloping syntax the rushing and tumbling excitement that war has thieved from the house. Though some shadows flutter slowly, their compensating animation of wall and floor is short-lived, and Wolf's phrasing seems to acknowledge this as it shuttles the reader on, never lingering for long on the image as it singles out clause by clause. The structure of affectionate feeling aroused here con concedes the finitude of its own loveliness, a concession intimated grammatically by sentences that cannot rest, that refuse to lull in the solitude the scene for a moment revivifies. If Wolfe's anthropomorphic picturing of form offers solace, then its articulation in these lines plaintively enumerates what had parted, calling attention through the progression of Wolfe's catalogue to the impermanence of that shape which loveliness and stillness try to sustain. Rhythm, too, offers resistance in the pulse of those questions this scene scarcely needed to answer. Will you fade? Will you perish? Questions whose anapistic insistence presses back against the unraveling, unraveling momentum of the paragraph as a whole. Rhetorical and metrical components of style thus console by counterweighing the impression of what can remain against the pace of unraveling description. 
even if nothing it seemed could break that image established by a vacant house filled and animated by its natural environment the language required to track accrete and itemize that state of animation yields the perpetual motion of documenting wind and light at once embellishing and imperiling the air of pure integrity the home enshrines spatially the moment's focus promises to be held like the clasped hands of loveliness and stillness caught in the swaying mantle of silence under which the rooms memorialize what they miss by the extent to which a face or a hand can still be sensed grammatically though the rendition of that focus acknowledges the unsustainability of such redeeming poise in sum wolf ripples the serene surface of the episode's seductive image of endurance slipping into the pearl of parataxis the tougher solace of expressive reanimation that recognizing that recognizes what expression cannot forever shelter tougher because it vivifies rather than veils that discrepancy between unbreakable image and mutable form such is the elegiac triumph of the lighthouse as julian beer has observed since the novel seeks to sustain entity precisely through a kind of writing which eschews permanence this paradox captures the unsettled sometimes conflictive dynamic of solace that requires that relinquishes sorry the restorative pledges of form that wolf advances and the contemporary figures like whitehood and great and grossman as we'll shortly see are extending in ways that illuminate consolation's contestability as an ethically freighted legacy of modernism now despite your enthusiasm for ian forster one suspects that wolf's uh, elaborate impressionism here would set zadie smith's teeth on edge for her lyrical modes remain a serious cause for concern for the novel's future well-being even if they once originated in the formal transgressions of modernism everything must be made literary she says in neverland and this produces a style that readers are likely to find all more appeasing because it seems so familiar for smith graceful melodious depictions of experience avoid what she calls the deconstructive doubt that questions the capacity of language itself to describe the world in any accuracy a work that foregrounds its own narrative nostalgia as something we should look kindly upon netherland is bent on assuring us of our beautiful plenitude she says now i want to suggest that the doubt smith mentions here is part of the affective complex that metamodernist fiction routinely negotiates moving into the contemporary scene now i'll indicate how lyrical moments in fiction today are often shot through with a sense of agitation about what they undertake in situations of devastation or irreparable loss these works reveal how lyrical structures of feeling in post-millennial fiction challenge in turn the reduction of style to a matter of appeasement distraction or false redemption to put lyricism's metamodernist formations to a strenuous test though we need to consider novels in which any sort of trace of redemption feels obscene where the compensations of aesthetic form would be abhorrent if smith's concern is that lyrical novels supply readers with false uplift then what purpose do structures of lyrical feelings serve in texts where the systemic degradation of life is the norm one wouldn't think of colson whitehead's now virtually canonized the underground railroad as a brightening reading experience this unflinchingly brutal novel with its bracing revamp of the plantation escape narrative has already attracted quite pointed readings that praise whitehood for allegorizing the necessity of fiction as a model for critique in neoliberal times it's a novel to put it boldly that affirms the extent to which no amount of social mobility or liberal self-advancement amongst contemporary readers should dilute its searing reminder of the unresolved legacy of slavery and yet despite this novel's ferocious content whitehood seems to be interested in doing something more unusual with his style unusual because moments of lyricism do everything to counterpoint rather like wolf the, the barbarities and the sorrows the novel elsewhere documents this friction between prevailing action and lyrical description is all the more pointed in brief moments of respite their brevity of course being part of their agonizing pathos as one of the novel's main focalizing centers of consciousness the young cora 
is watchful of such moments because of what they fleetingly promise yet forever deny by offering slivers of how freedom might feel to the enslaved. A birthday celebration on a Georgia plantation sets Cora on guard, wary of the moment, quote, when the music tugged. Her fellow slaves form a circle of themselves that separate the human spirits within from the degradation without. Producing an verbal analogue for the separation, Whitehood disarticulates expression from the setting's shared tension, offsetting style against the communal apprehension that besets the cotton field's black inhabitants. As a result, style intervenes in the novel's predominantly hellish focus on the routine facts of their bondage. The lyrical moment this yields furnishes a kind of linguistic uplift that soon concedes its own evanescence, bearing witness to a structure of affect that dissipates as quickly as it takes hold among the players in servitude to the song. The music stopped, the circle broke. Sometimes a slave will be lost in a brief eddy of liberation, in the sway of a sudden reverie among the forrows, or while entangling the mysteries of an early morning dream. In the middle of a song on a warm Sunday night, then it comes, always, the overseer's cry, the call to work, the shadow of the master, the, rem the reminder that she is only a human being for a tiny moment across the eternity of her servitude. All the more devastating for being, devastatingly poignant for being so tiny, the moment enacts the impossible solace it briefly tenders. Whitehood captures through the sudden swell of sibilant phrasing the gossamer respite of reverie, whose brief eddy affords a tangible glimpse of freedom, whose unattainability is reaffirmed grammatically here by the way the final sentence recedes to a stark catalogue of servitude's reminders. Now, the Underground Railway, um, I think Railroad, Railroad, it's not Railroad, Railway, makes uh, shattering use of such momentary events, fragile episodes of alleviation that arc from abated toil to the grim anticipation of their own extinction when the call to work resumes. For Whitehood, Moments of consolation are thus all the more painful for being, for betraying through their impermanent rescue, the slave's imminent return to subjection. Toward the end of the novel, this kind of lyrical moment recurs in its most pathetic form. We learn that Cora's mother, Mabel, did not intend to abandon her daughter as Cora is left to assume after embarking on her own solitary escape. Before planning her return, one that would be cut short by a fatal snake bite, Mabel struggles through bogs and comes to rest amid noises of the swamp. What ensues is a tranquil enumeration of naturalistic detail that seems like the stuff of reverie, but the episode swerves into a more purposeful moment of recognition as Mabel lyrically particularises the feeling of liberation. Above, through the leaves and the branches of the blackwater trees, the sky scrolled before her, new constellations wheeling in the darkness as she relaxed. No patrollers, no bosses, no cries of anguish to induct her into another's despair. No cabin walls sh shuttling her through the night seas like a hold of a slave ship. Sandhill cranes and warblers, otters splashing. On the bed of damp earth, her breathing slowed, and that which separated herself from the swamp disappeared. She was free, this moment. She had to go back. The girl was waiting on her. This would have to do for now. Her hopelessness had gotten the best of her, speaking under her thoughts like a demon. She would keep this moment close, her own treasure. When she found the words to share it with Cora, the girl would understand there was something beyond the plantation, past all that she knew, that one day if she stayed strong, the girl could have it for herself. The world may be mean, but people don't have to be, not if they refuse. This late scene searing tragedy is that we know full well the effect Mabel's absence has had on Cora, who is still waiting on her. We know too by this point how slim Cora's prospects are for thriving beyond the plantation. But then again, does the very fact that Whitehead offers this moment as resilient treasure, just pages before the end, stand as a kind of structural compensation, a discrepant interval between the aftershock and onrush? incessant horrors, is the consoling realisation that Mabel was free 
automatically disqualified by the convulsive offense, events we've just read. Mabel never survives the return journey in this moment to share it with Cora. Yet Whitehead's decision to insert this standalone episode before the book's denouement grants us the very words to keep this moment close, even as they presently escape the character this moment embalms. Now, after this book's preceding journey through unspeakable violence, it seems irrefutably difficult to read this uplifting description for what it is, as anguish and despair dissipate in the ecology of sights and sounds. Surely it would be obscene to suggest that this novel, like The Lighthouse, is anything other than desolate. But at the same time, Whitehood, ever the agile stylist, clearly wants the texture of fiction concerned with traumatic history to produce more than uniform affects. He wants us, as Wolfe did, to interact with what lyrical moments snatch back from misery, what might be fetched up from oblivion, to borrow Wolfe's phrase from time passes. Yet without diminishing the harrowing indictment of inhumanity that Whitehead achieves via era of escalating racism and resurgent nationalism. Lyrical structures of feeling shed light on the importance of literary description in traumatic novels, where it would seem ethically contentious to suggest that style in any way compensates for plot. As I tried to show in a recent article for New Literary History, description plays an crucial role in for narration in its own right. Description has always been central to lyric poetry, of course, and is often the feature through which links between poetic and fictional forms of lyrical writing are made. Drawing on Margaret Atwood's terms, Ian Ray deems that lyrics generally stress formal elegance and verbal felicity, by focusing on objects in space and noun and adjective accurate description, while at the same time isolating partic a particular emotion or cluster of emotions. But what kind of occasion might raise the personal and political stakes of accurate, particularising description? What would lyrical moments mean to a novel where sensuous descriptions of experience are tantamount to survival? A novel where verbal felicity isn't just decoration, but a tool of resistance? Well, taking up these questions, I'll turn for the remainder of this talk to David Grossman's To the End of the Land, whose English translation appeared in 2010 when it was hailed as one of the great anti-war novels of our time. It follows an Israeli mother, Aura, as she hikes through Galilee in defiant refusal to wait at home for the worst news ahead of the release of her son, <coughs> Offer, in military service. In fact, Offer had already finished his requisite term in the army, but decided to volunteer again, following an emergency call-up for a new defensive against the Palestinians in the ongoing intifada. Gripped by dread, Aura squares up to her imagination's unremitting, quote, capacity for disaster. Surprising even herself, she resorts to magical thinking in the hope of preempting the news she fears, news that would be brought by the military's official notifiers. In order to avoid these notifiers, Aura decides to leave the house altogether, sensing that, quote, every moment she spends at home is dangerous for them both. Without a firm route plan, she embarks on an all-consuming walk that is itself, in a way, lyric in form, a self-examining, introspective effort to describe one mother's love for her son with a force that aims to impede war's foreclosures. Throughout, Aura is taunted not only by intimations of harm, but also by misgivings about this seemingly crazy venture in continuing her journey into the wilderness instead of going home to receive the bad news. Nevertheless, this venture becomes her way of coping with something ominous enshrouding the thought of offer whenever it, quote, suddenly emerges inside her. To counterbalance the menace, she hopes that walking will free him from the destiny-deciding cogs of Israel's military machine, that against the likelihood of grief's terrifying delivery, quote, the parcel will be returned to the sender, the wheel will stop for an instant, and he may even have to reverse a little, a centimetre or two, no more. This precarious promise, this act of preemption, is the thing that grows brighter by the minute with needle-sharp flashes of furious cheer. Aura, though, decides not to go it alone. She needs an audience with whom to share that furious cheer. 
Recently separated from her husband, Ilan, she calls on the love of her life, Avram, Ilan's adored friend and father of Offa himself. Years after she and Ilan raised him as their own, Offa's paternity remains undisclosed to both her sons. The very act now of describing Offa to Avram is everything. Quote, this is why she brought Avram with her, to give a name to all these things, to tell him the story of Offa's life, the story of his body, and the story of his soul, and the story of the things that happened to him. Detailing Offa so intensively with such virtuosity is her consolation. When, Offa, when Ora depicts piece by piece just a few little things about Offa's life, she finds comfort in the fact that by virtue of her depictions, at least Avram would know this person he had brought into the world. Therein lies the political impulse behind this novel's lyrical form. In his pu public lectures, journalism, and critical essays, David Grossman has emphasised fiction's opposition to the discourse of retribution, fuelled by the twin banality and bellicosity of reactionary nationalism. The bombastic language of war is narrow and functional, he insists. Writing is the opposite. Reporting in early 2000 on the Israeli army's occupation of southern Lebanon, he urged withdrawal by noting that every soldier killed now is an unnecessary victim of military arrogance. Aura knows this too, of course, sensing how that arrogance has th always threatened to change her two sons irreparably, even when they're no longer serving. Meanwhile, arrogance also threatens the very process of accommodation for Israelis and Palestinians alike, reinforcing what Grossman calls the armour that all of us in this region have become accustomed to living in. Given that the language used by the citizens of a conflict describe the situation becomes flatter and flatter as the conflict goes on, the writer's task for Grossman is to expose the cliches and slogans for what they are. For him, the novel's particularising way of expressing perception mends the insult of describing ourselves in coarse language, as he puts it, replete with generalisations and stereotypes. In these terms, Grossman sees that fiction can begin to confront the state-sanctioned uniformity of Israel's self-articulation a climate where newspeak flattens language, adding insult, as he puts it, to the injuries of military dehumanisation. The penetrating detail of lyrical description is itself political for Grossman, because such detail retrieves the tragedy of the one, as he calls it, from the statistics of the millions, all of which is an effort to regain the language the situation has confiscated from me. Such is the recuperative mission of To the End of the Land, through Aura's exhaustive retrospections on Offa, the novel enumerates the makeup of one person, as she says, who is so easy to destroy. Thus, Aura sets out to tell Avram the smallest details about Offa all the way from birth. From the moment he was born, she drew strength from him, and now she saw his tiny fist with a deep crease around the wrist and the bold red of the tiny hand itself, which until moments ago had been an internal organ and still looked like it. The hand slowly opened and revealed to Aura for the first time its conch-like, enigmatic palm. What have you brought me, my child, from the deep, dark universe, with a thicket of lines drawn all over it, covered with a white, fatty layer of webbing, with, with, with its translucent pomegranate seed fingernails, and its fingers that closed up again and gripped her finger tightly? Paratactic, yet somehow composed in Jessica Cohen's lovely translation, the, t the syntax unfurls with a measured tempo of the sort that befits the affection aura projects from a distance, an affection that's no less acute for all the years that have passed. Patient and poised, this colorific account of one tiny hand thus reproduces in its steady momentum, in its unhurried, studied accretion of lines, webbing, and fingernails, the pace of which that enigmatic palm has slowly opened, its features revealed in a way that only perpetuated its mystery, consolidating the hand's aura of indescribability. The whole sequence momentarily suspends the narrative, just as Wolf sought, in comparable moments, a means to waylay the attrition of time. That aura's Luminous memory here is in turn shadowed by the eulogy that it could still become, intensifies the pathos of what could otherwise just have been a tender recollection. 
Such scenes then hold solace and fear together in abeyance. But Aura knows that as she recounts of her childhood, the evocative richness of her descriptions could turn out to be elegiac, anticipating the loss of what they passionately evoke. If she gains some reprieve from dread in devoting these animated moments to her son, then their aid also coincides with apprehension, haunted as their descriptions are by their proximity to the eulogy she hopes they will never become. Lyrical descriptions of offer remain for her defence, but they nonetheless remind her and us of what Grossman calls fate's cruelest arbitrariness, highlighting that destiny which Aura strenuously aims to divert by reclaiming her son in words from the military's chauvinism. The episode thus captures at the level of language the paradox that's played out at the level of character across this novel, whereby Aura welcomes the compensations offered by lyrically evoking her son precisely as a way of fending off the prospect that, as she, that she may well have to be consoled for his loss. For Grossman himself, the personal stakes of such an episode turned out to be extreme. Most of the end of the Lenderland was finished in draft when in August 2006, he joined the right of Amos Oz to urge their, uh, urge their government to accept a ceasefire with Hezbollah. A halt to the Israeli offensive arrived too late for Grossman's 20-year-old son Uri, who was killed in the closing moments of the Second Lebanon War by a rocket strike on his tank. Just as Aura, in her continuous resolve, believes, as we've seen, that she has to keep moving, has to be constantly in motion to safeguard offer, so Grossman sensed at the time of right completing the novel that he had the feeling, or rather the wish, that the book I was writing would protect Uri. On the front line of despair, writing afforded, in his words, the slight satisfaction of doing the right thing, of choosing life again. If much of the novel's plot was already in place, what changed above all, he notes in a devastating postscript, was the echo of, of the reality in which the final draft was written. It seems inconceivable now to read The End of the Land without hearing this echo for ourselves, without the book's voltage being continually raised by the searing pathos of that postscript. The novel was Grossman's unexpected apprenticeship in bereavement, for it turned out to be the lyrical elegy it never wished to become, proleptically grieving the loss its author never wanted to anticipate, the loss Grossman once hoped his writing, writing process might somehow hold at bay. Very different <clears throat> novelists I brought together here allow us to get a better handle on the critical implications of lyrical structures of feeling. In his essay, uh, the, An Autonomy of Effect, in 1995, Brian Masumi claimed that structure is the place where nothing ever happens, offering the reader a self-consistent explanatory haven. Nothing, I think, could be further from the truth in Wolf, Whitehead, Grossman. Their effective structures are born out of moments in which style itself at once stages and contests its own potential to console, yet without diminishing the idea that literature, as Sebold once argued, may nonetheless offer restitution, a source of redress. The fact remains, though, that lyrical strategies often get a bad rap in conversations about the state of fiction. Mark McGill uh, sails close to this uh, qualm in the novel's Forking Path, an essay I mentioned at the start. For writers today, he asserts, a temptation to lapse back into the lyrical is constant, and why wouldn't it be? To the extent that lyrical simply means a beautiful voicing of individual perception, adding that kind of value to the raw material of the world will probably always seem a good bet for writing something worth reading. In the end, Mark McGill is too shrewd a critic to castigate contemporary fiction for making the most of its lyrical resources, but there's a lingering insinuation here that the lyrical ensures readerly gratification. It's an aesthetic option, he implies, that novelists today might find hard to resist. Grossman Whitehead share with Wolf is the willing to entertain the possibility of conferring value upon the raw material of the world, 
without ever suggesting that we can tolerate distresses in lyrical language that cannot be weathered in real life. Having no truck with mere bedtime stories, they assess the novel's capacity to counterpoint the challenging material it so gracefully transfigures, while refusing to guarantee the reader's comfort. A nifty double act like that is just one of the things that metamodernist accounts of literary effect might help us to see.